Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another week, another episode of Cincy Brewcast, the voice of Cincy Craft. Uh, hopefully you know what you're listening to. If you don't, this is Cincinnati's finest guide to all things craft beer and craft beer drinkers and people who make craft beer, people who own breweries, people who work at breweries. It's the voice of Cincy Craft. It is everything and and nothing all at the same time this is um this is the show i guess so i'm by myself holed up in the basement again um but that's because i'm bringing you a uh, special episode of sorts i guess um the other night i had the opportunity to go down to the boone county library the uh main branch and i did a uh kind of a, a talk a uh class not a class it's like a lecture i get no that sounds terrible too i i talked about the history of craft beer in cincinnati um and uh, kind of guided people through um from day one when brewing started in the city to where we are today and we just kind of talked about it and then afterwards um, answered a few questions and uh, told a few stories and um, it was it was a blast and I happened to bring a recorder and recorded it the audio is not the best but it's definitely listenable so I figured I would share it with you guys uh, and you can all send me emails and tell me all of the details that I got wrong about things because I know there's a couple in there that I that I messed up so um, but I figured it would uh, not be an appropriate week if we didn't have um, from the beer fridge. Because, you know, it's Cincy Brewcast. We drink beer. That's, you know, the whole point of a podcast. So I've been drinking um, the last of my mellowship from fretboard. Um, it wasn't really going to be part of the from the beer fridge, but since I'm drinking it, I might as well talk about it. It uh, I don't know if we've tried it on the show before. We might have, but um, it's fretboard's kind of... Um, it's a uh, an India pale lager, but they kind of put their own spin on it. They call it an India-style session pilsner. So it's a pilsner, um, but it's hopped up with um, some bigger hops that, uh, you know, a couple American hops and some noble hops mixed in there to kind of create their own thing. So it's kind of a session IPA, kind of a pilsner, kind of a IPL. It's definitely its own thing. Um, the can says the fellowship of Cincy beer with traditional grains and a blend of American and noble hops, uh, 4.9%, 14 IBUs. Uh, I, I love this beer. I think it's great. It kind of fits the bill. If you, uh, kind of like a session IPA where if you want something with a little bit more hops, but you still want to drink a few of them. So since we've been kind of working around the house today, Sunday, when I'm recording this little intro bit, so, um, We've been kind of working around the house, and I needed something that I could keep drinking all day, and it definitely um, nailed exactly what I wanted. So that's what I'm drinking. Um, but I also stopped and got a six-pack the other day of Taft's new Double India Pale Ale um, called Juicy Jubilee. So I had been wanting to try that. I had some that I threw in the fridge, and we will try that together for the first time on the air. So... If you are a regular reader of the blog, which I hope you are, um, you might have read my post about kind of this new branding that Taft is starting to put out. And I th this kind of 
falls right along line with that, but is still kind of a mix between this new stuff that we're going to see and the old stuff. Um, big bright cans and, uh, has a big green hop in the, in the background, um, bright yellow color, lots of bold text. It's, um, I love the cans. I think it's beautiful. And then right front and center is the, uh, the Taft's logo. Um, I love it. it says, it says sweet aromas of Mandarin, orange and grapefruit are followed by notes of ripe papaya and golden pineapple. A silky mouthfeel leads to a smooth finish. So, um, big fruity tropical, uh, citrusy IPA is what I expect. Give me a second while I actually try it. Yeah. So it's got that big kind of dank, um, hoppy aroma. Yeah. Nice and fruity, citrusy. Um, all this, yeah, this smells great. Mm. Oh yeah. Big, um, bold in your face. Definitely a whole different road than the, uh, the mellow ship that I've been drinking most of the day. So yeah, that's great. It's, um, I wouldn't call it like a traditional West coast IPA. It's definitely fruity and, uh, kind of that new school kind of thing without being too new school, like all the new Englands that we're seeing out there. Um, this is fantastic. Uh, I think it's in six packs, probably 10, 11 bucks, maybe. Um, it's great. If you have not already grabbed some, go grab it. Um, I picked mine up of course at jungle gems, but I'm pretty sure you can get it all around town. So, um, do that. Um, yeah, this is great. I'm, I'm actually really enjoying this beer compared to everything else I've been drinking all day. Um, it might be 8.6% to, uh, numb some of the pain of, um, all of the work that we had to do today, but, um, very enjoyable. Uh, yeah. So we're going to jump into this. Um, this is probably like a 45 minute kind of, um, episode. So, well, from here to where I'll start actually talking to you again is probably 45 minutes. So, uh, enjoy, feel free to send your emails. Tell me what I said wrong. Um, this is the history of Cincinnati from, uh, day one until now, since he broadcast the voice of Cincy craft. But most of this is going to be kind of Cincinnati from the very start of brewing um, in the city and kind of through a couple different waves that we've had is how I always kind of look at it. Um, you know, there was the start of everything pre-Prohibition. You had Prohibition where everything kind of died off. There was this little spurt in the 90s that kind of happened all around the country, also happened here. And then um, the, the modern kind of side of craft beer in the city. Um, I apologize for not having any beer for you guys to drink. It's not my fault. We'll blame the library. (laughs) (laughs) I I promise when you talk about beer, it's a lot more fun when you have a beer that you can drink. (laughs) Um, So just after we're done, go get a beer somewhere because um, you'll probably be thirsty. Um, I also am probably going to have to look at my notes throughout the thing so I can remember dates and things like that. So forgive me for that. But um, like I said, four waves of kind of uh, brewing or brewing history. Um, here in town. You guys don't care if I sit while I do this, so I don't pace around, right? Is that okay? If anybody can't hear me, just let me know. Um, brewing started in Cincinnati, depending on who you talk to. Um, the city was founded in 1788, and then a couple years after that, 
is when people started making beer because as soon as you, you know, kind of settle down somewhere, you have to make yourself something to drink. Um, a lot of people say that this guy named Davis Embry was the first brewer in Cincinnati. There's a little bit of evidence that says that probably wasn't necessarily the case, that there might have been a few people before that. Um, the one that we have a little bit of a record for is this guy named Dover, James Dover. He uh, put an ad in the newspaper at the time in Cincinnati for um, some hops and some barley and some honey and wanted it delivered to his brew and bake shop, which was, I think, on Sycamore Street. Um, the ingredients to make beer, you know, he never said that he was making beer, which is why people don't count him, I think, but um, there was also, a few years later, um, a record that came out that showed that there were two brewers living in the city at the time, um, so he was probably one of them, and the other one, we still don't really know who that was, but, uh, so Dover was the first one in Cincinnati, had a, had a brewery for, um, I'm going to say probably 10 years or so, like I said, notes, um, uh, Davis Embry also was around for about 10 years or so. Um, in 1853, the city directory was what I was talking about that listed two brewers living in the city. Um, and that was all pre this Davis Embry guy that everybody says is the first brewer in the city. So as soon as the city started, people started making beer. Um, by the mid-1800s, so you know, 30 to 50 years later, um, we had 36 breweries around town that were making more than 30 million gallons of beer. So within within half a century, we were making a, a ton of beer. You know, I I don't know an exact number of how much beer is being made in the city right now because a lot of our local breweries don't report um, how much they're actually making. So it's hard to get a good idea of it. Um, Rheingeist is our biggest brewery, um, and according to them. I think this year they're shooting for 100,000 barrels. Does that sound right? I've heard that. Um, so, like I said, they're the biggest. There's, there was a lot of beer being made in Cincinnati at the time. It's, you know, crazy numbers to think about when you think about the the technology that was going into brewing and or lack of technology that was in brewing. Um, the one of the exciting things about Cincinnati's pre-prohibition um, brewing scene is that there's still a lot of pieces of it that are around the city. Not as much here in Northern Kentucky as there are in downtown and in OTR and places like that, but you can still see pieces of it. In Northern Kentucky, the, the one little piece that's left is the Bavarians building. When you're coming down 75, Jillian's uh, was a party source for a few years. Um, the big ugly yellow castle building that was um, the Bavarian brewery. There was also uh, Wiedemann, which was located, I think, around where the Campbell County Jail is there. Um, that was, unfortunately, the building was demolished, but um, those were Northern Kentucky's two uh, biggest breweries for, for a lot of years. As far as in OTR, you can still see um, pieces of the, that, that, that pre-prohibition um, brewing scene. Um, Rheingeist is located inside an old Christian Moorline bottling plant. Uh, Christian Moorline is located in an old Kaufman brewing building. Um, you've got uh, the Jackson Brewery is still standing. Um, 
Jackson Brewery. There's not currently a brewery in there. I know there's some people that have been trying to make that happen for a long time, but um, it needs a lot of work. Uh, uh, Northern Row is situated right behind <coughs> Rheingeist. Their tap room isn't quite open yet, but they're a, a really cool brewery distillery. Um, they're in a, an old Moorline uh, ice house, just a real big, tall kind of building. Um, when you go in there, the walls are super thick to keep everything cold inside. It's, it's a really neat space. When they get it open, um, I encourage everybody to check that out because it is cool. Um, the Jackson Brewery is the one that I was talking about that uh, kind of sits um, at the top of, of OTR um, on Big Micken. Um, the side of the building says Metal Blast on it. And just to kind of give an idea of some of the stories behind these individual places, uh, Jackson Brewery started in 1829, so again that kind of mid-1800s when things exploded. Uh, it was called the Andrew Jackson Brewery at the time. Um, there was a German guy named uh, Schmelzer that, bought it, that, that started it. Um, he sold it a few years later to uh, a couple brothers who uh, named it the Jackson Brewery. Um, and the 1873, George Weber bought the building, and uh, <laughs> a couple years later, it burnt down on the 4th of July from a stray firework, and while rebuilding it, George Weber went bankrupt and had to sell it to somebody else, um, and where it was renamed back to the Jackson Brewery after being the Weber Brewery for a couple years. Um, they operated until Prohibition, which was uh, 1920. Um, closed for prohibition, opening in afterwards, but nobody could get it profitable. It was bought by out-of-town interests. You'll hear that a lot as we kind of go on. Um, and again, they couldn't make it profitable, so eventually in 1942, it closed. Um, has never reopened since as a brewery. Um, there was a, a project a few years back called Grayscale Cincinnati that's a music venue slash brewery kind of thing. Um, they had the building for a few years, were working on renovating it and couldn't make it happen for the money. Um, ended up buying a church in Northside, and they're called Urban Artifacts now. Um, they wanted that building, it looked really cool, but again, couldn't happen. So um, those stories from these individual buildings, it's just over and over and over you hear this, you know, one person starts it, it changes hands over a hundred years. Wasn't that building in Nelson for I think they're separate buildings. Um, there's the, the Metal Blast building that sits back, and then I think Felsenbrow's the one in front of it. Felsenbrow, uh, or Cliffside, um, I think that's the one that Rebel Metal is working on right now, of getting that renovated, and supposedly they're getting My great-grandfather was him. Of course he was. <laughs> Dan Listerman is... Um, the owner of Listerman Brewing Company, which I'm sure there's going to be some questions for you by the end here. <laughs> and uh, he has been, I think, Cincinnati Magazine called you the center of the craft beer community in Cincinnati. Is that right? Like all, all roads lead to Listerman. <laughs> You'll find as you look around Cincinnati's brewing community, a lot of the people who are who own breweries, who brew in breweries, that there's always some kind of tie back to Listerman because you guys were not just selling brewing supplies before anybody else was here in town. Um, Dan, <laughs> do what? Not quite sure. <laughs> well, 
people that are still around. <laughs> um, uh, Dan is, is a, a mechanical wizard and kind of created a few things that a lot of people are still using today and um, pioneered a lot of the technology behind the homebrew side of things. Um, also was one of the first breweries here in town um, that are still around. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, made a few beers for a few years before you could even have a tap room and has since then um, <clears throat> created a tap room that has evolved as everything else has evolved. So um, the, uh, we could do a whole talk just on the story of Lister. Um Christian Moorline, um, another one of those pre-prohibition brewers that you know, I'm sure everybody's heard the name Moorline. They're still... They're still around, different company, but the, the name has been bought and continued on. Um, Christian Moorline is kind of the quintessential rags to riches story of what it meant to um, come to the United States at the time. He was uh, Bavarian and left his home city with, I think, 40 bucks in his pocket, which was probably more money then than it is today. But um, walked some 300 miles or something like that in Germany to get to... Uh, a boat to sail across to the United States and wound up here in Cincinnati as a, a ditch digger and did that for a while and then opened up his own blacksmith shop and did that for a while and then eventually opened up a brewery the site of his, uh, his blacksmith shop and that brewery over the span of the next um, however many years um, became the fourth biggest brewery in the country. He was shipping beer off to the Philippines, um, you know, down to New Orleans. His, his beer was going places that um, it was unheard of at the time to do that because he was the first brewer in Cincinnati to pasteurize his beer. Uh, he was the first brewer in Cincinnati to buy an ice machine, which made making lager beer, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, possible. You have to ferment lager at a, at a colder temperature for longer. Um, it just it, it made the whole process easier and more easier but made it more efficient um, so he grew to be um, definitely the biggest burger in Cincinnati and one of the biggest um, in, in the country um, and the story of people like Christian Moorline um, was very different than it is for owners of breweries today the, the idea of a, a beer baron was a thing where you not only owned your brewery you know, the, the people that lived around you all worked for you. They uh, you know, worked long hours, six days a week at the brewery. Seventh day, their families came back to the beer garden, and there was you know, singing and, and dancing and eating and drinking, and you just you spent all day there hanging out. It was Gemutlichkeit, uh, you know. It was, a, it was the, the German... Gemutlichkeit uh, it's, it's, is, a, is a German word that means uh, kind of the... Festive, help me out, Dan. What is the festive act of <laughs> celebration? <laughs> you know, eating and drinking and warmth. And, um, it was, it was, that was what the, the beer gardens were about, with the, um, even the, uh, the beer halls and things like that. It was all it was about that kind of atmosphere and all centered around these, these guys, you know, the, the, the Christian Morlons and the Mulhausers and these, these guys that, um, created this this thing that um, you don't see the same way these days you know it's, it still exists but in a very different kind of uh, format um, talked about the stuff happening here in northern Kentucky which was 
definitely bigger towards the uh, the end of the 1800s um, with Bavarian and, and Wiedemann. Uh, the, the coolest part's the loggering tunnels, which you have to talk about if you're talking about things that remain um, from pre-prohibition. Um, has anybody taken a tour of any of the tunnels down there? It is one of the coolest things that you can do that will kind of change the way you think about the history of beer here in town. Um, lager beer became popular in the 1840s, 1830s, something like that. Um, it was a new kind of yeast that was developed um, in Europe and uh, made its way over here with the, the German brewers that were, that were um, headed over here into Cincinnati. Um, lager yeast, like I said, has to ferment at a colder temperature for a lot longer than the traditional ales that um, were being brewed before that. So there were these tunnels that were being dug underneath the breweries, into the hillsides, to store the beer, to, to ferment the beer, to age the beer, um, because we didn't have refrigeration. These tunnels were under almost every brewery that existed at the time because lager beer became so popular. Over the years, they were kind of forgotten about somehow. I still don't understand how you can forget about these tunnels, but um, they were filled with garbage a lot of times, filled with rubble and um, just sealed up. And then in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, probably 15 years, they have just started being rediscovered all around town. You know, the Cincinnati Ballet has one under their building. It used to be uh, Shaneling, and there's a, a, a lagering tunnel, and they store all their costumes and stuff in it now. There's, um, if you go into, if you take a tour of the, the Moorline Brewery, they love to show you their tunnels that exist under there, and there's one that goes underneath the street to a different building, and I mean, just, just really cool stuff. And, you know, they range anywhere from kind of small kind of tunnels to just these massive, massive spaces that double the size of the building above them just from how much beer was being stored down there. Um, but there's lots of tours that go through them. Uh, American Legacy Tours, I think, does it all year round. Um, in my opinion, the best way to experience it is Bachfest. You uh, go to Bachfest and um, they do tours all day that Saturday. Bachfest is in March. I don't know how, how much you guys actually know about what's, you know, some of these festivals and things like that. Bachfest happens um, in early March and uh, it's a celebration of Bach beer, another German beer style. Um, so you can take a tour of these tunnels and kind of hear all the history and then, you know, the tour ends, comes right up into the Bachfest celebration. You can get a beer then and, uh, like I said, talking about it is way more fun if you get a beer. <laughs> so check out the tunnels because it's um, the best kind of representation of um, some of that beer history that's still around. Um, if anybody has any questions as I'm going on, feel free to just kind of raise your hand, wave it around and ask because um, this is supposed to be kind of loose. Uh, da, da, da. You know, our, uh, our, our beer community, and I, I don't know how true this is, but I feel like we have a very unique attachment to the history of what was going on here in Cincinnati versus a lot of cities. Um, I don't know if it's because of the fact that we still have OTR, which is you know this huge collection of pre-prohibition architecture. Um, I don't know if it's the fact that we have this um, German heritage that um, you know so many people here in town still feel attached to. Um, but our tie to this, this brewing history is something that's very special, and you see it with 
a lot of the breweries that are popping up, you know, uh, you walk in the Taft Sale House and there's, you know, always a couple loggers on there that are super great examples. Um, Braxton, you know, right over here in North Kentucky is doing some really great stuff with loggers. The, the, the ownership we have to that heritage is, um, is something that's pretty special. And um, once you kind of start to get a grasp of why things um, get a picture of, of how big things were before Prohibition um, and how small it got and then where we're at now, you kind of start to see that you know we're, we're trying to get some of that back now um, after being lost for so long. Um, Prohibition, um, you can't 100% blame Prohibition alone for um, the die-off of our uh, beer community at the time. Um, there was, you know, World War One was happening. Um, leading up to that, there was a huge, or uh, leading up and during, there was a huge anti-German sentiment around town. Uh, street names were being changed, and there was a German festival, and the police declared that you couldn't uh, sing any songs in German at it. You couldn't have any kind of, um, everything had to be in English. Uh, books were pulled from the libraries if they were in German. It was just, you know, uh, <coughs> Germany was the enemy. And um, that kind of transferred over into the beer community, too, where a lot of the breweries were German breweries. They all had German names. They were making German beer, and it was, it was evil. It was bad. So uh, that coupled with the... Um, temperance movement, which was um, the you know the, the prohibition forces, uh, over time just destroyed everything that was happening before that. Um, in 1913, they passed a law that limited the number of saloons that were able to operate in the city. Overnight, um, hundreds of saloons had to close around town. Um, there was the Temperance movement um, was—I I, want to say it's, it was strong in this area, not necessarily in Hamilton County and that kind of center of it, um, but in the kind of the outlying areas, it was extremely strong, which kind of then bled over into um, Cincinnati. And um, you, know, you can't you can't fight the masses like that. Quick question. Yes. You said they had they passed a law that said you only had so many saloons and a whole bunch of them had to close. Uh -huh. Was there a criteria for who closed and who didn't? I don't. I couldn't find any information about. Yeah, I'm sure there's some of that. I don't know if it was how long you had been open. I have no okay. idea. Um, but I mean, at the time there were there were I want to say thousands of saloons in the city. I think the number was something like 1,500 or somewhere around there is what I read. But um, so. Hundreds and hundreds have to close to uh, to cut it back down to the proper number. Um, we had, uh, you know, if you look at you know, Cincinnati as a whole, the, the kind of the fight against prohibition and the, the dry laws and stuff. The uh, Cincinnati Reds were the, the red stockings at the time. Got in trouble for uh, there was there was a law prohibiting serving beer on Sundays, and they got in trouble for serving beer on Sundays while baseball was going on. Um, so they got kicked out of the, uh, was it the, I guess the National League at the time was the name of the, uh, um, the, the league they were in, got kicked out and were getting back to the point where they were going to be able to be reinstated. 
Um, but the league told him, he said, you guys cannot serve beer on Sundays. And they said, well, we just won't play baseball on Sundays. <laughs> so they just completely stopped playing on Sundays so that they could still serve beer at games. You know, so that was the kind of stuff happening leading up to this. We were, we were definitely a beer city. We are still a beer city. We've always been a beer city. We just kind of forgot it for a while. Um, after Prohibition kicked in, um, almost everybody had to close. There were a lot of breweries that tried to, to make it. They were making a product called Near Beer, which was not any alcohol in it. It was just kind of a, basically a, a malt beverage. Um, and nobody really wanted to drink that, so that didn't work very well for most of them. Some places tried to make sodas and um, soaps and things like that, trying to do things that were um, somewhere along those same kind of skill sets. Um, most of it just didn't work. They didn't close right away. They were closing eventually. Um, Bruckman was the only one that was able to stick through the whole thing, making some form of near beer and other products. Um, Did you say Bruckman? Bruckman would Bruckman. be. Where, where were they located? You know? Bruckman was, um, if you head up 75, um, there's a, uh, a smokestack that says "Worth More Chili" on it. Yes, um, that was the Bruckman Brewing oh, Facility. There's still that, a bunch of buildings. Is that there. also Cumminsville Brewery? Also, is that the same brewery? Maybe. Right there off of Ludlow Avenue and 75. Uh, maybe I'd have to. Yeah, I'd have to look up. And the, like the names change through a bunch of things. But yeah, that's the same spot. Okay. Up there. Yeah, near, near Cincinnati State. Uh, yeah, 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 right there. Um, they were the only ones that were able to survive through Prohibition and therefore we're the very first brewery that was able to get beer back out afterwards, um, which we will get to an afterwards after Prohibition. We'll get through the side part. Um, the, as far as surviving through Prohibition, um, there, there were some places that were able to make um, alcohol still. You could, you could have medicinal alcohol. Um, so that kind of got some places through. Um, Home brewing was a, uh, a big thing during Prohibition. There were some companies around that would sell kits, you know, for wine or for beer, things like that. And uh, you couldn't sell it as a home brewing kit, but you could sell the kit and very clear instructions not to do this and not to do this and not to do this and not to let it sit because it may ferment and may turn into alcohol. So don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. You know? And so that was kind of um, the way a lot of those places were, were able to do that. Um, there was somehow enough home brewing or brewing going on that we had two malt companies that were able to survive through the entire um, bout of prohibition, uh, Red Top and Burger, which I'm sure um, some of you guys know the names because they eventually did turn into brewing um, companies. Um, then there were places like Hauk. Hauk Brewing um, was making near beer until they were raided by the feds, and the feds found that their near beer wasn't as near as it was supposed to be, and was beer, and they you know, took it all and dumped it all out into the sewers. But there was so much beer that all the, all the manhole lids popped off the sewers and it just flooded the street because they just poured it out there. So um, you know, there were people making a lot of beer still, somehow. Um, we had um, the benefit of having uh, George Remus here in town, who was um, considered the king of the bootleggers. He, um, uh, the inspiration for The Great Gatsby, if anybody's ever read the book or uh, seen the movie, 
Um, he was kind of a, a partier is the best way to put it. He would throw these big lavish parties, give away you know, jewels and cars and things like that. He owned something like uh, I don't have the number of distilleries that he owned. He owned distilleries, was a licensed pharmacist. He had 3,000 people on his payroll. Um, he was striking deals with liquor and beer makers in nine different states, um, making a ton of um, illegal booze. What he would do as a distiller was he would make legal um, medicinal booze and he would sell it to legal pharmacists and things like that. But somewhere in that transaction, somebody would come and steal part of it and sell it on the black market. He didn't know how that was happening because, no, I'm, I'm trying to stay above board here. Um, so there was lots of, lots of backdoor deals and stuff going on, too. Um, but he, uh, he was in town, and he was buying a whole lot of beer. Um, uh, before he was sentenced, um, uh, Wiedemann was discovered to be one of his big uh, um, suppliers when they were busted. Um, Carl Wiedemann was very similar to Remus in kind of his uh, his actions. He was um, a drunk and a partier and uh, didn't care much for authority. He, uh, in 1927, um, so you know, just a few years after Prohibition started, federal agents stopped a truck that was leaving the Wiedemann Brewery at the gate, and they found 16 half barrels of full-strength beer in the truck. Um, when other agents raided the brewery, they found... 3,500 barrels that were immediately ready to ship somewhere. Um, the brewery was seized with, along with records, um, and the records showed that Wiedemann had been brewing 50,000 barrels a year of just <laughs> regular beer <laughs> to go somewhere. Um, and uh, uh, the brewery was also charged with tax evasion then, because you, if you're going to make this beer, you got to pay taxes on it, of course. Um, the case then started to fall apart a little bit um, because of bribery allegations. So the federal agents that seized the truck at the gate told the truck drivers, $15,000, we can make this go away. Um, a couple other um, agents um, offered somebody else $20,000 in another part of the case. So it was all falling apart um, when two nights before the trial started, Carl Wiedemann uh, was arrested for drunk driving when he wrecked into another car. On the second day of that trial, he just didn't show up for court. The police found him sitting in a cafe drunk. Um, when all that happened, a couple people turned on him, turned him in, and said, yeah, he was brewing illegal um, beer. So the, uh, uh, the brewery was seized. <laughs> he never, I don't think Carl Weedman ever got back into the uh, beer business after, uh, the, uh, after Prohibition, but the brewery was um, bought by somebody else, and they uh, they kept trucking for uh, quite a few years under some kind of ownership. Um, they were eventually bought out by out-of-town interests, so you hear that a lot, um, and the beer was terrible until it was bought um, by some, some local people here in town, and they'd been trying desperately to bring it back for quite a few years, and just opened the uh, first Wiedemann Tap Room here in town. Um, up in St. Bernard, so um, Weedman is back and by far better than ever. So if you ever want to stop in there, the beer is 
not as bad as probably some of the weed you remember from the 70s. Uh, so prohibition ends finally. Post-prohibition, all of our breweries are gone. Uh, you had, um, like I said, Bruckman was able to start up afterwards um, and make beer. There were um, only 31 breweries were able to be open uh, by 1933. By the following year, only 756 breweries um, had resumed operations. Um, and that's in the entire country. So um, if you keep in mind that, you know, it took us until 2016 when Prohibition happened in 1920 to get back to the number of breweries we had before that. Um, so Prohibition destroyed every ounce of an industry in this country for a really, really long time, not just here in Cincinnati, but everywhere. Um, but we definitely felt it here in town with how big of an industry beer was here. You had not just the people that were owning and running breweries, you have people that are making barrels, people that are selling hops, that are growing malts, that are, um, you know, selling the horses, that, that pull the wagons, that sell the, like all of these different industries were affected by, um, prohibition. Um, after Prohibition was repealed, um, we get some of the other names that um, are pre-Prohibition names that you probably have heard about, you know, the Hudipole, uh, Foss Schneider, Schaller, Wiedemann, Bavarians all reopened. Um, unfortunately, by 1960, only Hudipole and Shaneling were left over. Um, everybody else had either closed, changed hands, moved out of town. Um, it was down to just those two of our pre-prohibition breweries that were left. Um, the world was changing immensely um, and moving into a horrible time of consolidation and big beer buyouts and everybody started drinking mass-produced, light, American Pilsner beer that um, was a shadow of what it used to be. and. Um, Local breweries either couldn't afford to compete with some of the things that the big breweries were doing or just didn't have the, uh, the power to do it in a lot of cases. Um, Out-of-state interests um, were buying a lot of breweries, trying to operate them for a while, and then shutting them down because it didn't make sense to have this tiny little outdated brewery in Cincinnati or wherever it may be versus their big fancy state-of-the-art brewery in a different state. Um, to kind of give more of a local look at it, you know, Cincinnati Reds, like I said, were always very tied into to beer and drinking. Um, Burger gave up the rights to Reds radio advertising in the 60s. Um, fortunately, Wiedemann was able to buy it up, but then in the early 70s couldn't afford to keep it when uh, Strohs came in from out of town and bought it up. Um, 1977, Pabst, again, not local. Um, came in and bought up all of the Reds TV advertising. And then in 1980, Anheuser-Busch came in and just bought it all out from everybody and owned it all. Um, National Giants took over sponsorship of Oktoberfest, the Riverfest fireworks, concerts, community festivals, all of the, 
all of that kind of stuff that um, is a huge part of our culture here in Cincinnati. It's now these big national brands that are advertising and uh, forcing out the, this, this local um, beer community that we, we had. Um, they were you know, essentially running local out of local, which is uh, um, a time that I'm, I'm glad I was not a uh, beer drinker. Um, then the 90s, the 80s and the 90s came and there was a movement um, across the United States um, to drink better beer. And a lot of it we can thank for some of the imports that people were trying and, and liking and starting to see there, there is something better out there. Um, and craft brewers started popping up in different parts of the country. Um, it became very trendy very quickly to have a brewery and um, brew pubs became very popular. Um, a lot of people were ready to invest a lot of money to open one, and in turn, there were a lot of mediocre breweries that opened up um, very quickly. Um, in addition, um, right about that time was when Miller opened up their brewery up in Trenton. They opened that in 1991. Um, Are you allowed to use foul language in this? <laughs> I thought nobody, nobody gave me rules. <laughs> uh, you know, as much as you know, we, we don't like big beer, um, we have some big breweries here in town that are, that are doing some good stuff. You know, I, I, I will never say a bad word about Sam Adams. They have done some amazing things locally and kept the brewing community alive in a lot of ways. Miller, as much as I think their beer sucks, um, that brewery is, is, is pretty awesome. They, nothing goes to a landfill out of that brewery. You know, they employ some it's like 500 people or something locally here. Um, they kind of stay out of way. Don't really like, you know, create a fuss. Don't really come around, you know, waving the waving the, the Miller flag as much as they probably could. But um, so I won't, I won't I won't crap on them too much. I won't drink their beer, and uh, I'm not going to uh, <laughs> so put them on the kind of pedestal. But they're here. They are somehow supporting the brewing economy somehow. Um, the uh, the first kind of uh, craft brew pub um, locally around town here was in my neck of the woods, um, up at Forest Fair Mall. It's called Wallaby Bob's. Um, they were unfortunately not open very long. I think under a year they survived from what I hear. Um, I never got to try it. Uh, here the beer was not that great. Um, and again, I can't say because I never got to try it. Um, I believe their brewer is still around town. Um, distilling and making wine and some things like that so um, they were the first um, at that time if you wanted to have a place people could come in and have a beer at the place it was made you had to have a restaurant also you could have a production facility like Miller places like that um, but you couldn't have a tap room so you have places like Rock Bottom that opened up um, there were um, a lot of little restaurants little brew pubs around um, Main Street Brewery, Barrel House. Um, there was a group called the Queen City um, Brewing Company, the Queen City Restaurant Group that opened up um, Tellers in Hyde Park and Bella Downtown. Uh, what other places did they have? They had uh, a couple of other ones. That a lot of these places are still around as restaurants, but they started as brew pubs. Um, Unfortunately, everybody that was starting a brew pub at the time, it just didn't work because the beer wasn't that great. Um, except for Rock Bottom still sticks around. Everybody else um, 
closed. Um, the uh, one of the fun ones was um, Brewworks at the Party Source. We talked about that Bavarian building there in uh, um, Covington. An idea that was probably way ahead of its time and um, way ahead of the ability to really make it happen. Um, the bottom floor of the building was a, a party source store. Um, then throughout the building they had several bars, they had a, a brewery, they had a brew your own uh, on-premises kind of thing where you could go in and brew your own recipe, they had a cigar bar, and beer bar, and all these things built into this one building. Um, and again, it's just ahead of its time. Uh, kind of similar to, I think, the idea for um, what we see now with um, you know, the party source and um, what was 8-Ball and then the distillery out front, just this idea of bringing it all into one kind of area. Um, again, that hasn't really worked out on the green either, but um, just this idea of combining it all into one space. It was Oldenburg in Oldenburg, thank you. That was another one of those places that breaks my heart that I never got to experience. So in Fort Oldenburg, you know, from what I've, I've heard, was just absolutely a beautiful place when it was built, um, and um, yeah, I never got to experience it when it was open. Got to see the building lots afterwards before it was demolished. But um, there are these places that just were so far ahead of their time. And um, if you built Oldenburg here in Cincinnati today, it would be you know everybody would just this is the greatest thing ever, you know. <laughs> but um, like I said, there was lots of money being thrown around at the time. Um, that pulls us into kind of where we are now with um, modern craft. Um, we have, as of writing my notes and going over them this morning, we had 60 breweries locally. Um, as of today, one of our breweries closed. We had two locations, so we're now down to 58. So um, the growth has been kind of crazy. Um, Give you an idea 2012 there were five breweries that opened 2013 three 2014 three 2015 seven then 2016 all of a sudden we have 10 breweries that opened 2017 there were 17 breweries that opened 2018 12 more opened so it's this this definitely this huge curve of um more and more breweries the type of brewery is changing um you know when um, Rheingeist and Madtree opened in 2013. You still could not have, well, right before they opened, you still could not have a tap room without having a brew pub. Um, you had to have just a production facility. So the places before that, um, the Listerman and the Rivertown and uh, places um, like that were, were production facilities. They, you could not go and sit down and have your beer. You had to either, um, in the case of Listerman, just buy it in 22 ounce bottles and leave and take them home. Or in the case of Rivertown, you had to go buy it at Kroger in a six-pack. You had to uh, Mount Carmel. You could get a growler and take that home. Um, in 2013, the law was changed to where uh, well, a, a license was added to the law where you could open up a, uh, a tap room. And you could have a smaller brewery that um, could make beer and then sell it on site. A little, little tap room bar that everybody's familiar with now. It seems normal, but... Um, you know, we're only five years into that being a possibility here in town, um, which is why you see kind of that spike happen. Um, Madtree and, and Rheingeist were kind of uh, the first two places that kind of jumped in as that was happening and really kind of developed their business plans around that. And 
they did all right because of that. <laughs> um, uh, there's tap rooms now for literally whatever mood you're in, whatever you want to drink. If you want a place that is family friendly, if you want a place that's pet friendly, if you want a place where you can get food, if you want a place where you don't get food, if you want a place that's quiet, if you want a place that's loud, if you want a place that's big and giant and beautiful, or you want a place that's small and concrete and a little uncomfortable, like there's whatever kind of atmosphere you're looking for, it exists. Um, uh, one of you guys asked me earlier what my favorite brewery is, and I said it's not really a fair question because it really depends on what mood you're in and, and what you want to drink. There's you know, some days of the week where if I've got friends in from out of town and you want to really kind of wow them, Rheingeist might be the place that you go. Um, whereas other times if you want to sit around with some of your, your beer geek friends and talk about you know whatever the nerdy topic is, you might want to go sit at the bar at Listerman and chat with one of the people there that's just as geeky as you are. Um, you know, they, it just depends what you're looking for. And I think that's what's really fun now is not only do you have these different types of tap rooms, they're in every single corner of the city. Um, wherever you live, there's a place that's fairly close by. I'd say that being here in Northern Kentucky where you guys are still a little bit light for what you need to have for uh, how many people are here thirsty. Um, it'll happen. <laughs> But, um, you know, tap rooms, the idea of what a tap room is, is changing just as quick as, um, as beer is changing or catching up with what it used to be, depending on how you look at it. Um, what makes craft beer special is kind of the last little area that I have. Um, and I think that it's, it's very different for different people. Um, my, my mom is not a beer drinker. She um, has never liked going to, to tap rooms or to breweries. And even now, there's places that she can walk into. She's like, I, you know, I, I enjoy this place. I like this place for this, 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 and this reason, which are not even near the same reasons I would have. But it works, and it, it, it's perfect for her, and she enjoys it. And um, that's what makes it special. It's the, um, the community, the environment, the people behind it. Uh, it's something that's very hard to put in some kind of statistic or something like that. It, uh, it's the um, it's the same as those the, you know the beer gardens pre-prohibition. It wasn't wasn't just the beer that was being made. It was the fact that you're in the middle of this this, this neighborhood, this community. These people exist to to to, to create this bigger picture. It, it, the neighborhood around it, and you're you're starting to really see that with places now. It's uh, it's extremely fun to watch, and um, in the case of today with brewery closing, it's extremely sad to watch when it doesn't work out for whatever reason. But um, they uh, they meaning breweries um, have definitely started to really find the importance of becoming part of um, their individual communities, um, even in looking at a big community like Cincinnati the individual neighborhoods that make it up, you know. You've got places that just become so ingrained with that neighborhood of theirs, and with charities, and with, uh, you know, like I said, being family-friendly and bringing in food trucks that, you know, it's a whole industry that has sprung up that, um, in a lot of ways, it was an existence to the brewery community, you know, it's these, these coexisting um, industries that happen around each other. Um, there's things that, 
have happened here in town that uh, just blew me away. The you know with uh, talking about the beer geeks, you know, the, you, it used to be that a brewery would make a beer and put it in bottles and send it out to stores, and that's how you go and buy it. And now um, there's a whole phenomenon of the beer release and. You know, Dan knows this probably better than anybody else. You know, you, re you release a popular beer and um, open your doors in the morning and people line up beforehand to get the beer. You know, people hang out for hours before the doors open. People bring chairs and bring heaters and bring, you know, griddles to make breakfast and coolers to not share beer on um, public streets. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a phenomenon that... Um, is is mind blowing to watch happen here in Cincinnati of all places. It's uh, um, it's incredible. Who here has not been to a craft beer release? Anybody? Uh, they truly are phenomenal uh, events because it's like going to a bottle public bottle share event on the street. I mean, people <laughs> bring in beers from all over the country and share them with perfect strangers as you're standing in line. You're looking for the word geek, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they're very friendly people, and I kind of chuckle anymore. I'm like, if I was some homeless alcoholic, I'd look up where all the beer releases are in the city, and I'd go around and hit them. Because at least then you could get drunk on some really quality beer. <laughs> but they, they are... Uh, something interesting to hit at least one of them. I know Listerman's is uh, an interesting place. Yeah, Listerman's got one some other. this Saturday, I believe. Uh, yeah, Saturday morning. Where those are? You go to the gnarlygnome.com. <laughs> all of the latest happenings in the local beer scene are. There's almost a release. I'll go ahead and jump back in now. Um, I won't let you kind of sit through all of the the question and answer period that I did because there's some uh, you know some kind of inside baseball stuff and a um, couple uh, homebrew questions that might not be um, appropriate for what you're looking for at the show. But um, it was definitely a blast getting to go down there and talk to people about craft beer in Cincinnati. I know that, you know, I do this podcast and I talk to people all the time, but it's very different when you're face to face with people and, um, can actually see reactions and get questions and, uh, you know, get to actually deal with people and not just a microphone in front of your face. So, um, I like that. I'm probably going to try to do a few more things. I'm going to kind of take this presentation and roll with it, get some visual stuff to go along with it and, um, maybe make it a little bit longer and, uh, improve it hopefully so um any thoughts any advice that you guys have about it uh feel free to send me an email cincybrewcast at gmail.com and i can take your thoughts into consideration uh we are going headlong into the new year with new shows i've got a few things on the books and a few things that i'm working on and then this mysterious new show that i've been hinting at for what seems like years now is very close to um coming to life so keep an eye out for that. And, uh, if you, uh, want to come see this thing, this podcast thing live, 
keep an eye on social media. Uh, there's some fun stuff coming up. So thank you guys for listening. Uh, we will definitely be back next week and uh, the week after that and the week after that and the week after that, hopefully. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, CincyBrewcast.com, CincyBrewcast at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts or opinions, share it with your friends. Um, follow, subscribe, all of those things that you're supposed to do. Um, thank you very much. Cincy Brewcast, the voice of Cincy Craft. Mm-hmm.